This episode of Radio Film School is brought to you in part by Song Freedom. Go to songfreedom.com radio and use the offer code radio to unlock a one-time standard go-level license valued at $30. Song Freedom, license music and support other artists. It's also brought to you by Daredreamer FM Premium Membership. Help support the show as well as collect valuable resources to help you grow in your crafting career for less than a large cup of your favorite gourmet coffee per month. Just head on over to daredreamer.fm slash join. Now, on with the show. You're listening to Dare Dreamer FM, the sound of creative expression. I, in a large area, view uh, filmmaking as a craft or a vocation. You're learning how to do something, right? right. You're, you're learning how to set up a camera. You're learning how to set... It's a trade. You can dress it up any way you want. You can give the fanciest degrees. You can put it in the most academic uh, setting. But guess what? I feel learning how to be a filmmaker is still vocational. You're still learning how to do something tangible. As we continue on our filmmaker's journey, we come at last to a topic I've anxiously awaited to address. Whether or not filmmakers of today should or even need to study the masters. The voice that started this episode off was that of David Shulman, executive director of the Seattle Film Institute, the Pacific Northwest's largest accredited film school. As the founder of a cohort-based school that requires all of its students to study film history, David naturally had a thing or two to share about this topic. And so the analogy I use is people used to learn filmmaking on the job by being apprentices. Well, if you take that quality of apprentice and go back in history, there wouldn't be the most basic apprentice painter in the 17th century who wouldn't have an understanding of the great artists that preceded them. That's, that's how they learned their craft. I mean, it was, I mean, it, it would be like breathing. It was so ingrained, it wouldn't even occur to you that there's an alternative way. How can you learn to be a painter without knowing what the painters that have come before you have done? I mean, there are so many different reasons why you need to study the masters of the past that, you know, we could talk for four hours and we wouldn't run out of reasons why. Now, as I want to do, I love using short, nostalgic clips from some of my favorite movies and television shows to kick us off. All throughout cinema, there are so many wonderful examples to use with regards to this topic of master and apprentice. Master moving stones around is one thing. This is totally different. No, no different. Only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned. All right, I'll give it a try. No, try not. Do or do not. There is no try. Well, why, why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. The person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. 1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. <sighs> Imagine what you'll know tomorrow. Concentrate. But the scene that I think really captures the essence of this topic of learning from the masters, particularly as it applies to today's filmmakers, is this classic scene from Disney Pixar's Cars. 
There is one poignant scene in that movie that makes for a strong case in the benefit of learning from those who came before you. Now, if you recall, that 2006 movie told the story of a young superstar racing car, Lightning McQueen, and the lesson in humility he must learn in an old, beaten-down town along the historic Route 66. Lightning has been instructed to repave the town's main road. In one of the scene's more poignant and funny moments, Judge Doc Hudson, voiced by Paul Newman, offers him an opportunity to commute his sentence early. Hey, look, Grandpa, I'm not a bulldozer. I'm a race car. Oh, is that right? Then why don't we just have a little race, me and you? If you win, you go and I fix the road. If I win, you do the road my way. <laughs> I don't mean to be rude here, Doc, but you probably go zero to 60 in like, what, 3.5 years? The pompous and prideful lightning gleefully accepts the challenge confident he's going to leave old Doc in the dust and be free from the podunk town forever. The other cars in the town, as well as we in the audience, are all somewhat confused as to what the judge is up to. He's old, rickety, and has a fraction of the horsepower of lightning. How does he possibly expect to win the race? Great idea, Doc. Now the road will never get done. Luigi? Oh, on your mark! Get set! Uno for the money, two for the show! Well, better late than never. Come on, Mater. Might need a little help. Uh, okay. You got your tow cable. Oh, yeah, I always got my tow cable. Why? Oh, just in case. In the last turn of the one-lap race on the dirt road, Lightning ends up driving into a cactus ditch attempting to make a hard left turn. In a later scene, Doc attempts to teach Lightning how to make that turn. This ain't asphalt, son. This is dirt. Oh, great. What do you want? You here to gloat? You don't have three-wheel brakes, so you gotta pitch it hard, break it loose, and, and just drive it with a throttle. Give it too much, you'll be out of the dirt and into the tulips. So you're a judge, a doctor, and a racing expert. I'll put it simple. If you're going hard enough left, you'll find yourself turning right. Oh, right. That makes perfect sense. Turn right to go left. Yes! Thank you! Or should I say no thank you? Because in opposite world, maybe that really means thank you! Regardless of how talented you are as an artist, there's always something you can and will learn from the masters who've come before you. The question is, are you willing to listen? I'm Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School. This whole topic of the importance of studying the masters actually started for me with a blog post I wrote almost five years ago. I have this mentorship program where I train and mentor up-and-coming young filmmakers or other small business owners looking to make a living at their craft. During one of my mentor meetings in the spring of 2011, I was talking to one of the more talented members of the team and he commented how he didn't know who the Coen brothers were or who Wes Anderson was. I was absolutely flabbergasted. How in the world could someone this talented at filmmaking not know who three of the most prominent auteurs in contemporary filmmaking were? 
But then again, it also made me think, did it really matter? I mean, he was good at what he did. Wasn't that all that mattered? It prompted me to write the aforementioned blog post where I posed the question to my readers. Do the young filmmakers of today need to study and or know the masters of yesterday? Here were some of my favorite blog post responses, reenacted by my podcast assistant producer team. Filmmaker Andrew Hsu commented, Who was the very first master of filmmaking? Think of that person. Then you ask yourself, did Blank know who preceded him before he got any good? This comment by educator David Farrell gave me one of the biggest laughs. Should young filmmakers study the masters? It depends. If they wish to be content in their ignorance, superior in their own little world, and not have a clue about how to express themselves through their medium of choice, and be contented in, oh crap, that looks cool, dude, mentality, then no, they don't. Okay, I have no idea what accent I was trying when I did that, but remember, I'm a filmmaker. I'm not a voiceover actor. And photographer David Wittig had one of the most poignant comments. Not knowing who Michael Jordan is might not affect your basketball playing abilities, but a lot of people are going to have a hard time taking you seriously as a basketball player if you keep saying you've never heard of him. Actually, this comment by David written nearly five years ago is nearly spot on to what David Schulman of the Seattle Film Institute had to say today. You know, we have one of our students and they've just graduated and they're out in a job and the director or uh, the production manager or the art designer says, I want this scene to feel like a German expressionist film. <laughs> well, uh, what if they've never seen a German expressionist film, right? I mean, so, so even if the student doesn't feel that there's a reason for knowing this stuff, they're entering a profession where there is a craft and the other people in the profession have a reference point. But I don't think you can afford to be inarticulate in the language where you're making your career. So I probably know what you're thinking about now. Of course, someone like David is going to passionately preach about the virtues of studying the masters. He runs a film school of all things. But I asked filmmakers from various filmmaking genres about their take on the topic. You need to be a lover of film, and, and, and being a lover of film means you're watching not just films that are coming out, you know, the brand new films on Friday, but you're going back to the early days and really understanding like the different sets of limitations that filmmakers faced when filmmaking was a brand new thing. That's the voice of friend and colleague Kevin Shahinian, an award-winning filmmaker sponsored by companies like Secuto and Canon. We first heard him in the last episode, In Search of Style. It just so happens Kevin's take on having this common language was nearly identical to David's. Listen to his answer as I comment on the state of young filmmakers today. Like, I don't see the 17, 18, 20-year-old who's learning how to be a filmmaker from YouTube taking the time to Google Kurosawa or Hitchcock or, you know, you know, Ford to kind of learn, okay, how were movies developed, you know, in the past? And I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. Certainly, if you're 17, 18 and you're that young, you're, you're going to do kind of like, you're going to just do what it takes to get your film made as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, and I think as you develop your own 
skill set and you make more films, you're going to become more curious um, and you're going to find out if it's for you or not. And if you, if you really feel like this is like a career in your early 20s, it's going to be something you should do. It's a collaborative medium. So as you're working with your DP and you're working with your production designer and you're talking to actors and they're bringing up these films and you don't get what they're talking about, it's going to become very obvious that it's something you're going to need to do. But let's get to brass tacks, shall we? How specifically should one learn from the masters? Do we just watch their films and via osmosis we become better? Or is it more deliberate? Should we look to specific elements? Well, David Shulman had something to say about that too. I mean, if you study Max O'Fools and see how the moving camera sets mood or Jean Renoir sets mood in one way and another filmmaker sets mood in a different way and you, and you may have a totally different way of setting mood, but you're going to be aware of the choices, you're going to be aware of, of different styles. You know, I can show films in a film history class and I can, you know, I'm not stupid. I mean, I can see that the, the, the film that they're watching has no resonance or they're not, you know, they feel a little bit removed from it. It doesn't have, you know... Uh, you know, I mean, it's just that the film itself is not connecting with them. Not well, enough stuff blowing up you know, for them. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. You know, I, I can see that. And, you know, you might not like the John Ford film, but as a tool, you might want to use that technique in one of your films. So, and, and when, uh, you know, when George Lucas uses exactly the same technique in Star Wars that John Ford used, the, the student might like Star Wars and might not like the John Ford film, but the importance is not whether they like film A or B, it's, it's the craft of the filmmaker. Someone may say, well, German Expressionism and Ford, you know, that is, that for me or for contemporary filmmakers, that's not the language of the trade anymore. No set I work on for the YouTube videos I make are going to mention, you know, Ophuls. But, so Max O'Fools is doing all this stuff with the moving camera before he had access to any of the any of these tools. So somebody now, uh, you know, our YouTube video, you know, who now has access to Steadicam, you know, looks at Max O'Fools. What does he notice? There's about 500 things that go on to make that Steadicam shot work. The framing of the shot at the beginning has to have a composition that's engaging and holds the audience's attention. If you're not interested in having a shot that holds the audience's attention or draws them into the story, fine they're gonna they're gonna stop watching it after three minutes then if the camera starts moving if, if, if there's an intermediary stop point in the camera move where is the camera framed at that stop point is the framing engaging all of this stuff you can learn so you might be totally bored you know by a max o'fool's film as a whole but if you study his moving camera you will learn everything you need to know about what makes a moving camera shot successful In the final segment of the show, we'll come back to this issue and hear from some talented filmmakers of today's generation who share the belief that studying the masters has merit. Stay tuned. Before I officially launched this podcast, I put out a survey where I had people listen to our season one preview. I gave people the option to rate on a scale of 1 to 5 how likely they were to listen to the show. I want to share with you one of the responses I received. She rated the preview 4 out of 5 but added this comment. All of the ideas you have about the podcast sound great. But I'm a little put off because the only identifiable female voice came in at the very end and wasn't really part of the artistic voices heard. 
I'm not sure if I can sustain much interest in just another bunch of guys talking about being artists. I'm an older woman, and I've heard plenty of that already. Subsequent to that comment, right after the show launched, one of the tweets I got praised the show, but also intimated that she too was hoping to hear more women. And I have to admit, there have been a dearth of female filmmakers on the show so far, but I can honestly say that it is not without me trying. Side note, if anyone out there listening has connections to fellow Seattle filmmaker Lynn Shelton, please hip her to our little show and let her know we are anxiously await the opportunity to interview her for the show. So, I've made it my mission to hear from you female filmmakers out there. Much trouble for some. You know, I think about uh, you know, showrunners like Shonda Rhimes, and who you know, runs two of the most popular television shows on, on TV. That was my introduction to a four-person women in film panel I conducted here in Seattle. I spoke with four professionals from various aspects of the industry. Stephanie Malone, an Emmy Award-winning producer and executive director of Nifty, the National Film Festival for Talented Youth. Nancy Chang, executive director of Real Girls, an organization that helps teen girls become media and filmmakers. Ryan Davis, co-founder and partner in Smart House Creative, a PR and digital marketing company for independent films. And Sheila Andrine, founder and CEO of IndieFlix, the Netflix of indie films. Or I think about, you know, Sherry Lansing and Kathleen Kennedy, who's at the helm of perhaps the most iconic property in the film world. I can go on and on, Paula Wagner and Amy Pascal. And, and so with women who have accomplished what these women have accomplished, is the proverbial glass ceiling gone? I think a lot of those women are pioneers. That was Stephanie Malone of Nifty. I can't help but wonder if her response to my question holds the answer to why in the end there are so few female filmmaker guests on my show. You've named a lot of them, but you have to understand that within the entire ecosystem, less than 5% of films are directed by women at major studios, and it's 16% of television. And just this week, the federal government has launched an investigation into the practices of hiring women in Hollywood. So obviously, there are issues at stake. I think they are pioneers as well. I think that they're all in their roles because they're the best person for the job. That's Sheila Andrine, IndieFlix CEO. I definitely feel that women telling stories is a completely different voice and having those stories out with television and film these strong female characters is great for all of us to see but for me personally in the corporate world when I'm out raising money I am always in rooms with all men and I'm sure that if you were to ask any of them they would say that they view women equally to men but yet I'm asked after I present my my business model, they'll say, wow, that's amazing. Who helped you with this? I think society has created systems where just men um, know how to navigate and it's set up for them. That was Nancy Chain, executive director of Real Girls. And I think these women in these positions have learned to navigate and um, master these systems. And I think as, as we want to look at not just the film industry, but all industries, is like, how do we create equal footing with knowing that there's systems in place to 
already for men to succeed. All the women that you listed, they're definitely setting the tone and creating more opportunities for other women to, to step up and reimagine what the systems can look like. Things I often made the joke that, um, well, of course, I'm in marketing and publicity, which are more traditionally like the ladies' fields. And I'm, I always I make the joke, but it's definitely very personal to me that I'm not in sound editing. Um, I'm not in lighting because those are traditionally men's fields. And that's Ryan Davis from Smart House Creative. I don't necessarily harbor a secret desire to be in lighting, um, but that said, um, there's there's a story that I've seen on on the internet recently about Steven Spielberg uh, bringing the director of Safety Not Guaranteed on for whatever massive project he's doing now. Jurassic World. Jurassic, Jurassic World. World yeah. Because he, he saw spits. himself in him and was like, I make my dad as my biggest champion. When Chantal Ackerman died, he sent me the link saying, thinking of you. And it's, so it's not like no one's supporting me, but there's also wasn't someone who came and said, I see myself in you and you have a, a you could be a great sound editor. That just wasn't open to me. So the things that I've been able to excel at are the more traditionally female roles in the film industry. Ryan's words really hit home. This idea that future generations of filmmakers are shaped by how current generations encourage and inspire them. If there are no filmmakers going up to little girls and saying, hey, I see potential in you to be the next great auteur. If there aren't organizations like Real Girls and Nifty, putting cameras in the hands of teen girls and empowering them to tell stories, Will we ever have a time of parity between males and females in the movie and television business? This conversation I had with Stephanie, Nancy, Ryan, and Sheila was so wonderful. And you can bet we'll be revisiting this discussion down the road as we cover this and other topics. But I didn't stop there. I have a plethora of amazing film and television professionals I've spoken with who just happen to be women. People like Lydia Hurlbut, CEO of Hurlbut Visuals, Emily Bess, CEO of Seed and Spark, Lauren Hartunian, the Dean of Education for YouTube celebrity Freddie W's Rocket Jump Film School, and many, many more. If there's a woman filmmaker you love to hear on the show, let me know. And tweet them. In fact, do me a favor and send a tweet to Lynn Shelton encouraging her to come on. If even a third of the people who download this show every week tweeted at Lynn, one of two things will happen. Either she'll be extremely inspired and encouraged and say, sign me up, can't wait to talk to you, Ron. Or she'll get totally annoyed, refuse to come on, and probably block me forever. I pray it's the former and not the latter. If you've been listening to our show for any significant amount of time, you know that we take music very seriously. We take a lot of time to find just the right tracks for each episode. As a filmmaker and a podcaster, I know how painstaking that can be. So it's nice when you have a resource of great music to choose from. And we wanted to help our listeners in that endeavor. That's why we're proud to have Song Freedom as a sponsor for the show. With licenses for as little as 10 bucks, they're a great resource for finding music to legally use in your film, video, or podcast productions. And they're the only U.S.-based site that has licenses for popular mainstream music like the song you're listening to right now, Oh Hey by the Lumineers. Oh. 
Other mainstream artists they have include Colby Calais, Jason Emraz, LMFAO, Frank Sinatra, Bob Dylan, Imagine Dragons, and Maroon 5. And Song Freedom has a special offer for radio film school listeners. Go to songfreedom.com radio and use the offer code radio and you can get a standard gold level license valued at $30. We thank Song Freedom for their support and faith in our show. Hey, Ron. Uh, it's Joe Busing. Yeah, absolutely. Should people uh, today discover the old masters? That was the voice of my friend and master photographer, Joe Busing. Joe is a world-renowned and respected photographer who's been a spokesperson for such companies as Apple and taught around the world. He's had such celebrity clients as Kelsey Grammer, Brendan Fraser, Christina Applegate, Christina Aguilera, Jennifer Lopez, and Jessica Simpson, and Nick Leahy. What I've always loved about Joe is his openness, his giving nature, and his passion for his craft. I invited my audience to leave a voicemail about this topic, and I was pleasantly surprised to see that the first message to come in was from none other than Joe himself. Although he's talking about still photography specifically, everything he's saying is completely transferable to filmmaking. In fact, it's pretty much transferable to any art form. Oh, gosh, you know what? I I am dismayed when I see uh, today's young group of photographers not have any idea who Henri Cartier-Bresson it was and uh, Robert Duano and Robert Frank and Ruth Bernhardt and there's so many, uh, Salgado, you name them. And we can all learn from the old masters because they did not have the technology that we have today. And when you think about it, they did things with rangefinder cameras, which meters oftentimes were A, inaccurate, or B, did not work. And they shot with ISO 25 film. Uh, they waited for moments. They did incredible artwork. Uh, and if you see some of these things, whether it's Ansel Adams or Brissant, and they hang in a gallery and a print goes for 25 grand, if it's an Ansel print, if you can find one, it's 100,000. They must have done something right. So I would venture to say that I would love to see people go to galleries and discover the old masters. You'll learn a lot from that. All right. Thanks, buddy. Nine times out of 10, you know, maybe even 9.9 times out of 10, these people are better than you. That's the voice of Nathan Corona. Nathan is a Atlanta-based filmmaker who has directed music videos for Grammy Award-winning artists like Chris Tomlin, Toby Mac, Sanctus Real, and The Newsboys. His work has a very distinct and nostalgic look to it, and because of that, I knew I wanted to tap his brain with respect to the topic of developing a signature style. Here he gives his take on whether or not one should study the masters. That's what I would say to the youngster that doesn't think they need it. You know, yeah. like, oh, you think you think you did a perfect job on that? Probably not. You probably could have done this, this, and this that so-and-so did in 1950, you know, right. uh, Akira Kurosawa. Do you want to watch a great Western film before Westerns were even invented? You watch Seven Samurai. That movie is a better movie than, you know, 30 years of Westerns that came after it. So you really want to know the genesis of, like, great spaghetti Westerns and all that, you watch that. It's an opportunity to make yourself better. If you take 
inspiration, ideas, concepts from any of these filmmakers, I think it's a great way to learn. That's the voice of Adam Forgione, an extremely successful commercial video producer who has, of this taping, is on a nationwide education tour sponsored by over 40 companies. I wanted to get Adam's take on this topic because I know that many of you have no desire necessarily to be quote-unquote Hollywood filmmakers. You're happy shooting personal events and commercial work. So maybe you're thinking, I don't need to study the masters to do what I do. Well, listen to what Adam has to say about that. I can only answer myself. I, I really can't say what's right for everyone else, but I think it's great to learn from masters. I mean, for me, Wes Anderson uh, is up there. Um, Ilya Shulman is, is, he doesn't have a lot under his roster, but that movie blows my mind, this, yeah. the, uh, the time that remains. But I mean, if I were to say who's my favorite director, filmmaker, Martin Scorsese, probably yeah. one of my favorite films of all time is going to be Goodfellas. But you know what's great about him? I find myself not studying his filmmaking technically. I find myself lost in his story. When I can lose myself in my own stories I tell, I know I'm ready to give it to the client. But I think those movies that I can get lost in, especially the ones that I go in saying, I'm going to study this. And then within three minutes, I forgot about studying and I'm like in the story. That's a good filmmaker. So we've heard from educators, wedding filmmakers, commercial filmmakers, and music video directors on this topic. And the consensus seems to be, learn from the masters. But I spoke with someone who had a slightly different take. I've always just been driven by people should study what inspires them and and understand why whatever it is that inspires them, whether it's a master or not. That's Zach Lepofsky. Zach's original claim to fame was being one of the finalists in the short-lived Steven Spielberg-produced filmmaking reality TV show On The Lot. He's a director, an actor, and visual effects specialist. He's also the brainchild and CEO behind the filmmaking iOS app Shotlister. A very cool app, by the way, if you do any kind of shot list. Hear what Zach had to say about this topic. As someone who's hip deep in the movie making engine, you may find his answer surprising. If you are really into whatever inspires you and it's not something that everyone else is into, like pull it apart and figure out the DNA and the structure and the setups and payoffs and the, the specifics of why it works. I think that's what's important. And I think generally, if you're a lover of film, there's going to be some masters inevitably that you that you're inspired by. Um, but I wouldn't say like you cannot be good at movies unless you've seen every Kubrick movie. Like I don't think that that is true. I'm a big fan of studying craft, and I do it not to to kind of lord it over people but to inspire myself finding out new tricks and tools and and things that they do that is kind of invisible to the audience but you can learn a lot from to to put into your own work and then add your own ideas to it so you've watched Bergman's Seventh Seal, Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes, and Kurosawa's Seventh Samurai. You've painfully deconstructed every Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin silent film. You've dissected the visual language spoken by Max Ophuls and Stanley Kubrick. Now what? Where do you go with it? It's not good enough, actually, to just watch these other movies and say, like, I checked that off the list. I'm now a master. That's Sam Messman, a Los Angeles-based director and CEO of We Make Movies. If you haven't done so already, go back and listen to the short ends episode, Plan E from Outer Space. That's where we were first introduced to Sam. In this part of my conversation with him, he lays the groundwork for where we'll take this conversation on the next installment of the show. 
you need to then make the mental leap of being like, okay, well, I watched that. I thought that was cool. I thought that was cool. I thought that was cool. Now that I've seen all these things, what do I want to do? And what's going to be different about what I do than what they did? Next time on the show, we get into the invisible influences the masters have had on our craft, the benefit of modeling the work of the masters, and learning how to take all of that and make it your own. That will be in about two weeks. Next week, we'll have another Shortens episode. Until that time, your mission, should you decide to accept it, is to watch one movie from a filmmaking master pre-1970. If you do, I'd love to hear what you thought. Just go to our website at daredreamer.fm, then use the send a voicemail link at the bottom of the page. Or shoot us an email at radiofilmschool at daredreamer.fm. I promise you, if you go down this path, you won't be sorry. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, with production help from Lucas Randall Owens, Tommy Ferguson, and Chris Huslidge. Creative Commons music is curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to artists and tracks are in the show notes. Music was also provided courtesy of Song Freedom, where you need high-quality music from every genre, including indie artists, mainstream popular music, as well as classic oldies but goodies. Look no further than songfreedom.com radio. Use offer code radio and unlock a one-time standard Colo license valued at $30. The one you can't repair. But I still love her, I don't really care. You'll find links to the filmmakers mentioned in this episode in the show notes and some of their video work on the blog post for this episode at daredreamer.fm. You can follow me on Twitter at daredreamerfm and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. If you haven't already done so, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a comment and review in iTunes. Tell me about one of your favorite film classics that inspired you. Until next week, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Just because I've watched you pick up women doesn't mean that I know how to pick up women. You ever see Karate Kid? What does that have to do with anything? You know when he's teaching them to wax on and off, but he's really teaching them to fight? You want me to fight someone? What's the first thing I do when I go up to a girl? I buy her a drink. Yes, always. Without fail, you buy her a drink even if she doesn't want one, you insist. And do I talk about myself? Never. Never talk about yourself, always about her. Because bar banter is boring. It's the so worst. you put the impetus on her. She has to be the interesting one. Impress me. Impress me with how interesting you are. It's a big game game creepy creepy little game oh, you that's play. judgmental isn't it mm-hmm. at the end of the night what do i do do i ask them to come home with me no you tell them to come home with you they have no choice in the matter it is your choice and they are so overjoyed to have had the opportunity to make sweet sweet love to you oh my god you did you miyagi'd me